Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I want to raise an issue, guys. Oh no. Terrible way to start the year. The persistent rational security 2.0 ragging on me <laughs> is getting old. <laughs> is it hurting your feelings, Benjamin? It's hurting my feelings, oh. guys. Host emeritus Benjamin Wittes. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm. I, it's, it's hurt my feelings, guys. You, you know, every episode there's like a dig, and you know, I, I actually listen, and you know, they, they hurt. We just wanted to check if you were listening. Exactly. Yeah. You could have asked. We do this for all our listeners, Ben. That's what you don't understand. We're insulting each and every one of them regularly throughout these episodes. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security, Rational Security 2.0, which I mentioned specifically because I am here, Scott R. Anderson, one of your regular co-hosts, with my two other regular co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are joined by none other than Rational Security 1.0, Rational Security host emeritus, I said it right this time, Benjamin Wittes. Benjamin, thank you for coming back on the podcast with us. Hey, on behalf of all the previous co-hosts, I'm just raising my voice in objection to you guys dropping the 2.0 and the whole new speak thing where you were going to erase the existence of 1.0. <laughs> we, we will bury you. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why, Ben, you will remain the rat sec whipping boy till the end of time. We've already chipped your faces off of uh, Mount Sec, uh, Rat Sec. Uh, oh, God, now I'm going to blink on the name of the stupid mountain with the president's face on it. What is it called? Rushmore. 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 I, like Thank you. I like Mount Sec, though. Mount Rushmore. Mount Sec. Hmm? Off Rational Security, Mount Rushmore. Mount you are no Rush more. Sec. We've pulled your statues down with ropes. We've dragged them through the streets. We've discarded them in our public parks under piles of dirt. Well, as the uh, discarded, I'm not sure if I'm the discarded Lenin statue or the discarded Robert E. Lee statue or the discarded uh, canceled virtuous person who got canceled anyway because they were busy tearing down all the other statues. But whichever I am, I curse you all from my trash bin. You're one of those Soviet encyclopedia entries that then has to be backfilled by like a much longer entry about a river or something when you when you're disappeared in one of the purges. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, with that in mind, I think it's time to look not backwards but forward to the coming year because this is what we are calling the 2023 and Me edition of Rational Security, a title to which Alan Rosenstein receives full credit <laughs> because we're looking ahead at a couple of issues that have come out in the last few weeks and that point in new directions moving forward for our country, for national security policy on a number of fronts. We're excited to talk about them with you, the listener here today. Topic one, watch out. You might get what you're after. And in case you don't recognize that this is, of course, the opening line 
to the Talking Hedgehogs burning down the house, because that is what is happening right now as we speak in the House of Representatives. Nice. Nice. For those not watching, I, I like we are that you, the- you had to actually do the first line of the song rather than just saying the title burning down the house that was too easy it wasn't obscure enough i haven't done enough obscure song lyrics lately i gotta work it back on it wasn't exactly obscure either but as we record the newly republican-led house of representatives is in the midst of an unprecedentedly chaotic beginning with its own members unable to agree on who will serve as speaker i think we're on vote two currently for kevin mccarthy as we are speaking who knows where this will end by the time or if it will end by the time this episode actually comes out Where do we think this all might lead, and what more should we expect from the 118th Congress? Topic two, title and reversed? The Supreme Court interrupted its holiday break to issue a temporary stay of a lower court order that would have ended Title 42 policies, allowing for the summary return of individuals caught trying to enter the United States on COVID-related public health grounds at the request of several Republican-led states. That is a terrible introduction for very complex issues, but we'll dig into it more deeply when we actually get to the topic. What do we think the Supreme Court's intervention might mean for these policies, and what does their persistent tell us about immigration politics more broadly? And topic three, a boom market for things that go boom. U.S. arms exports to NATO allies nearly doubled in 2022 due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But what might becoming an even larger arms exporter mean for U.S. foreign policy? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. Okay, so it's always useful when we're doing these recordings to say when we're recording on Tuesday, but I think it is particularly important to do so right now. It is currently 2.51 Eastern time, and I have the uh, New York Times live update page about the uh, a vote for the Speaker of the House open. We're on, as Scott mentioned, ballot two uh, for the vote of the Speaker of the House. Uh, so far, uh, Democratic uh, head, uh, party, party head uh, Hakeem Jeffries is actually leading, though, of course, he's not expected uh, to get the 218 majority. Kevin McCarthy is trailing right behind. And there seems to be some interesting momentum about uh, votes for Jim Jordan, who is in this awkward position of getting votes from the hard right that doesn't like Kevin McCarthy, while also trying to get his supporters to vote for Kevin McCarthy. Uh, it is a truly fascinating mess that is going on right now. Not quite unprecedented in American history, but not for a century has uh, the speaker not been chosen on the first ballot You have to go back to 1923 uh, when the speaker was chosen on the ninth ballot. And then the longest time it took was in 1855 when the speaker was chosen on the 133rd ballot. Hopefully we won't get quite there. Um, It's not the most auspicious beginning to this new Congress, but I think it is important to to focus on it because uh, if, of course, the House can't elect a speaker, it can't really do anything. Um, So let me ask you, Quinta, as our resident Molly Reynolds watcher, Molly, of course, being our resident Congress watcher, therefore, you are the closest thing we have to our Congress watcher on this podcast right now. What's your sense? Do you think do you think Kevin is going to pull it out? I don't know, man. I mean, I I should say to start off that I am but a poor pale shadow of of Molly Reynolds. Um, And I, I will do my best to channel her wisdom here. So anything smart I say should be attributed to her and anything wrong that I say is entirely my fault. Um, I do think, I mean, it was pretty clear. Well, maybe that's overstating it. I think it it was clear that McCarthy was going to have trouble winning on the first vote for for speaker going into today. He's had a month or so to shore up his position. And as of some reporting last night, seemed to not have done particularly well. 
which maybe also doesn't speak well to his ability to sort of wrangle his caucus if he he does uh, have the speakership. And today, I think there was speculation that there might be, you know, three, four or five Republicans voting against him. I think on the first round, there were 20, if not more, um, which speaks to a really, you know, serious opposition to him on the right. And the main thing he has going for him is just that there's not an obvious other person. As Alan mentioned, uh, Jim Jordan is getting some some votes from the far right, ironically, because Jordan is, of course, supporting McCarthy. There's some sort of weird splintering of the, the fringe. So Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, supported McCarthy, it seems like mostly so she could get her uh, committee seats back after she was stripped from all her committee assignments um, in the last Congress. But other members of the the Freedom Caucus and others on the far right, um, like Lauren Boebert, are not supporting McCarthy. So it's it's a real disaster. I think the number two that I've seen mentioned most often is is Steve Scalise, who sort of has the hard right creds. Recall that he once referred to himself as David Duke without the baggage, but is maybe a little bit less of a bomb thrower, but it doesn't seem like people are really coalescing around him either. And I think the problem here is just that, you know, the the right fringe has no interest in actually governing. Like there's not a, a candidate that they want to put forward because there aren't really things that they want to do. They want to get on television and yell. And that creates kind of an intractable situation, um, especially for someone like McCarthy who is there's been a, you know a lot of profiles written about him recently uh sort of all essentially saying you know he's very good with people but he's maybe not the brightest bulb on the christmas tree and doesn't have a huge amount of control over his his caucus so the whole thing is a disaster and <laughs> i don't know man i mean if let me just say if i were john boehner i would i would be i i hope that somewhere he's drinking a big glass of red wine and smoking a cigar and smiling uh, I just want to interject for for a second to say that the the Times is reporting that he that McCarthy is on track to fall short again on the second ballot. So we are now All getting right. into, which is interesting, right? Because there was always a possibility that we'll find the far right wants to smack him around a little bit on the first ballot, embarrass him, but ultimately they're going to come home. But once we get past the second ballot and the third ballot, you know, then the sixty sixth ballot is, is is a lot closer. The hundred thirty third ballot is 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 a lot closer. So I'm just throwing it out to to you, Scott and Scott and Ben. I mean, is this is this going to be an ugly period? But we're going to get through it, and the Republicans going to figure out who they want to lead them, and we're going to have something that looks like a normal House of Representatives, or or is this just the beginning of a very very long clown car for the next two years? Beginning of a very very long clown car. Uh, although you know, it's a clown car that could be worse if McCarthy actually gave in to a lot of the requests that were made of them. You know, I think that's that's one thing worth bearing in mind here is that we have an core part of you know, the Republican Party that's most of these 19 members that voted against McCarthy on the first ballot. Probably not all of them are quite on board with the same agenda, but a core of them that's leading this anti-McCarthy effort is really actually is trying to advance a substantive platform, but it's one that essentially is just self-aggrandizement. They want to have the thresholds low enough to have the ability to call votes on the speaker all the time, basically giving extreme minorities the ability to drive a lot of the agenda or at least threaten the speaker enough to take a lot of the agenda. McCarthy largely capitulated on that 
that demand, but it proved not be enough for some reason uh, before this latest vote. Now we had heard rumors before this last round early this morning that they were essentially seeking authority to launch lawsuits on behalf of the House with just, just they controlled, basically seeking Republican House authorization to allow the Freedom Caucus to be, pursue lawsuits uh, under the House's authority under something like the Blag structure that's currently used to authorize House litigation um, or has been for the last few Congress. I actually don't know what they're proposing for this Congress yet. I mean, it's a wild set of demands. And they're basically saying we want free reign to advance a lot of our substantive agenda. Uh, they want their own oversight authorities. They want major committee positions. It is a full on, you know, effort to self-aggrandize them. And McCarthy actually, you know, called them out on it in his floor remarks before the first ballot. He said, I had members in this group come to me and asking me for individualized demands, trying to do things like get more power for themselves and for these specific positions, because that's what these folks are doing. I mean, this really is an effort to just solidify their ability to really drive substantive things. So I do think there's an agenda here. It's not what we think of as a usual policy agenda. It is an agenda of you know structuring the House so that they are empowered um, with what they see as the right avenue to go. And that goes in a lot of weird directions. So you know I don't know exactly how this plays out, but it, no model looks good. Like if those demands are all met to, it really means that you're going to see a really chaotic house going in all sorts of directions, uh, at least on the house side with the house leadership there. If McCarthy somehow gets through, anybody who follows on is going to be in a real contentious, strange position, uh, potentially a weak position in the house. And they're going to face more and more of these uprisings by this core that despite, frankly, pretty poor showing by Republicans, uh, particularly in house races, this last term feels empowered. So I don't know really, uh, I don't think any of it speaks really well for House Republican leadership uh, in the Congress to come. Yeah, so I I agree with all of that. And I actually think that this raises a very interesting question from a democratic strategy point of view. Uh, so far, the actions of the democratic uh, minority has been to show absolute unity behind their speaker candidate, uh, uh, Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, this has the benefit of being, uh, you know, sort of highlighting democratic unity and and uh, comparative sanity against uh, the mayhem on the Republican side. But uh, I think it lacks uh, a certain imaginative quality of kind of bringing out the kookiness of what the Republicans are doing, because I, 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 Scott made a point that I, that I think is really worth hammering here. There is no policy issue at stake here. This is purely about does the farthest of the far right have Kevin McCarthy over their knee uh, and can spank him at any time? Or does he have any independence of movement? There's no, there's no, you know, policy dispute. So I was thinking, what would I do if I were the Democrats and I had this complete unity and the ability with my own nominations to highlight how ridiculous the Republicans are being? And I came up with a list of candidates that would serve different purposes. So the first two, uh, of course, are Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, which, uh, <laughs> you know, I think if you submitted them on the third and fourth ballot, you it would be a way of saying, hey, you know, we can, we've worked with these two people, we can, we can live with a Republican speaker 
if you can get five people to uh, vote for a sane Republican, we will cheerfully live under Liz Cheney or Adam Kensinger. So that's my nominees for ballots three and four. But then I think they need to move on to the candidates who really represent the the true heart of where the Republican Party is. And so, first of all, uh, they should nominate Marjorie Taylor Greene and all vote for her. But second, they should go to where the reductio ad absurdum of this logic is, and they should nominate George Santos, because uh, this is where this process should end, with all the Democrats voting for the guy who everybody knows is going to get indicted and shouldn't be in Congress at all. I think they should vote for you and just do like a meta troll vote. So I would, I I have already announced in public that I will not stand for uh, Speaker of the House and I will not serve if elected. Missed opportunity. Very General Sherman of you. I I will say that uh, George Santos literally, it appears, running around the Capitol with reporters chasing after him uh, to avoid their questions is just a fantastic B-plot for today's episode of the U.S. Congress. Real kudos Especially to the when he ran into a dead end. And then had to turn around and go back. Incredible. I even Incredible. have a nomination Amazing. speech all written for him. I, I, I would like to introduce him. And, and just the, the slogan is, why not George? <laughs> well, I, I think I think I think Ben's point about the sheer craziness of the situation is well taken, and it's bizarre. And frankly, it's great political theater for those of us who love political theater. Yeah. and I am yeah. certainly T- among terrible those. for the country, but tremendous content. Almost always, those two things are exactly in opposition to each other. But I will say this: you know, I don't think Democrats can entirely get off on the mania front a little bit because I think there's a little bit of edge of craziness in what. Democrats are doing so far, although we'll see if they they budge on this a little bit, um, for the simple reason that, you know, they have preferences on who the Republican speaker is, they should, and particularly who the Republican speaker is beholden to. And the craziest part about this whole system is just institutionally, you know, the way you would expect this in a neutral scenario is that you wouldn't be able to be beholden to the extreme fringes of your own party because in the end, at a certain point, it'd be worth it to either pull over votes, or frankly, you don't even need to pull over votes, which is much more likely. You just need members of the other party to sit out of the vote and lower the overall threshold required to actually for someone to become speaker. I think pretty sure that's how it works, if I recall correctly. And like at a certain point, it seems like Democrats should be using that leverage to try and get, you know, terms that they want out of Republicans and out of McCarthy who seems willing to deal with anyone. And some of that might be like not having a five member threshold. Um, the real question is like, are, do we, are our politics really on both sides, frankly, so, so toxic that every member is not willing to even do that, even when they don't have to affirmatively vote for the member, but just to withhold from voting. And that if it is like, that's not irrational, like that leads to an outcome worse for voters. Did you just both sides a situation no. where the Republicans are on their third ballot for speaker? <laughs> No, 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 not both sides. But I do think Republicans are completely nuts, right? But there's things that Democrats can do to empower different parts of the Republican Party in the speakership. And at a certain point, I think it's in their interest to do that. And if they, and I, I think it probably happens after a couple of rounds of voting where you underscore how dysfunctional the Republican leadership is. But at a certain point, like, I hope they have a plan to start stepping in and doing that. And if they don't, yeah, I actually think that's a problem. Not as big of a problem as Republicans. They're way more unified. But that's the sort of thing like, 
I would expect a really well-organized Democratic leadership to do, and, and frankly, I do expect them to do, is just a new team. So we don't 100% know, you know what their game plan is. Yeah. So to be clear here, I was actually not joking when I suggested the Cheney and Kinsinger thing, not because I think you would get any Republican votes for them, but sending the signal, hey, if you put up somebody who's willing to do business with us, we will support that person. We will save you from your crazy right flank. And sending that signal would would there are a lot of non-crazy Republicans in the House. They don't make a lot of noise. You don't hear from them very often, but there are a lot of people who aren't crazy. And if you can send a signal, hey, if 10 of you can get together and choose a person, we will come in and make that happen, is I think a very useful thing to do. And by the way, if Hakeem Jeffries, who seems like a very smart and very able fellow, has not quietly communicated to Kevin McCarthy, anytime you need a lifeline, reach out, my terms are more reasonable than theirs, then he's a fool who shouldn't be in the office that he's going to occupy. So I want to ask about those terms, because you know it's, it's fun to speculate about the Republican meltdown as it's happening, but at some point, this presumably will be resolved one way or the other. And we do have two more years of having to pass some laws, you know, debt ceilings, budgets, appropriations, things that happen here and there. Is there a resolution, whether it's, you know, Jeffries and McCarthy getting together and figuring out some power sharing agreement or something else that allows this Congress to function? I mean, forget well, let's just talk about the absolute, absolute bare minimum so that President Biden doesn't have to go and start minting trillion dollar platinum coins, uh, you know, every month. How about this? How about this as your terms, if you're Hakeem Jeffries? Number one, no crazies running your committees. I don't want to veto, but you know who we're talking about, aka Jim Jordan. And, you know, number two, the racists and the truly crazy people don't get their committee assignments back. And number three, no Hastert rule. And can you just remind the listeners and maybe me what the Hastert rule is? Because I have the Hastert forgotten. rule is that you don't bring anything to the floor as the Republican leadership unless it gets a majority of the majority. In other words, you don't rely on Democratic votes. And this has been one of the most polarizing things that has uh, it's been essential to keeping the Republican caucus together. And it has prevented exactly this sort of thing from happening in the past. It's one of the things that has kept that small minority of true crazies empowered enough so that they don't burn the house down. Now they're burning the house down anyway. So fuck them. Well, there, there, there's our explicit rating for the for, for the week, everyone. <laughs> but what do you actually think the odds are of some kind of agreement along those lines? It strikes me as like 0.00001%. It just, it's extremely hard for me to imagine. I think it depends how crazy the crazies are, right? So if you imagine that the crazies are trying to put on a show so that Lauren Boebert can go home and say, look, I'm not Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm not one of those squishes. I, I'm really the real deal. Then this takes three or four votes, maybe three or four days, and then you go on. But if you hypothesize that these are people who are actually insane 
and they believe all this stuff, just like they were pro-insurrection because they don't believe in the things that, you know, we believe in, like democracy and elections, and they're just power-obsessed mad people, then they have, you know, the ability to block something and they're going to extort whatever they can get for it. And then it could go on for a long time. And eventually, if you're Kevin McCarthy or if you're some other sane Republican, and Kevin McCarthy is sane, he's he's utterly without principle, but that might help him here. Eventually, you have to say, where are some other votes that I can compensate for this with? And there's only one place to go for them. And I have to say, like the other variable about this also is is what exactly is high value enough for Democrats? Just being able to get break the Hassart rule, even for you know ten pieces, five pieces of legislation, in the next two years could be huge when you control the Senate and the presidency. It means you can really, really force votes on key pieces of legislation that the leadership will defend their own members from having to take public stances on by saying, "Oh, it doesn't meet the Hassart rule. We don't have support in our own caucus for moving this forward." If you can force them to do it, even on just the debt ceiling or just aid to Ukraine or just the NDA or just appropriate, NDA is usually not a problem, but just certain appropriations. Or just the border. Or just a variety of things, like a couple of things where you can just force these votes for the next two years. You can actually get stuff done if you're Democrats because you don't have to get over a veto. You just have to get enough Senate votes online and Senate votes, probably enough Republicans in the Senate you can get on board with a lot of these things, especially like debt ceiling things, right? So honestly, like if you had Speaker Kevin McCarthy, but he wasn't beholden to being overridden by five members of his own caucus, and he said, yeah, I'm going to give you 10 pieces of legislation, five pieces of legislation you can call forward for the next two years, I, I think that deal might be worth it for Democrats. Make it painful. Make it a public display before you get there. Hurt, you know, Let the Republicans suffer and dangle on the end of the rope for a couple of rounds of voting. But in the end, like that's a deal I would take. And I think the Democrats should think about it if, if it's remotely on the table. And I don't know, we don't 100% know whether it is, but the, I think Ben's basically right. Like at a certain point, it has to be if you buy, at least some of these people are rational actors and want to get something done at some point. Because there's no actual formula out as long as you have these holdouts on the far end of Republican formula. There's nowhere else to go. Oh, I also, just one other speaker nomination, Ron DeSantis. Donald Trump's not working right now, man. They can they can put yeah, him up there. no. This is this is a big moment for everyone who likes to pull out the. Did you know that the Speaker of the House doesn't have to be a member? Congratulations to all. Of I wrote a whole today. article about it, man. <laughs> Politico, like a year ago. <laughs> Check it out. Kanye, Kanye for Speaker. Kanye for Speaker. Oh God, easy. See, this is this is the reckless energy that I think we need to bring to this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Elon Musk, <laughs> Speaker oh, of yes. the House. Done. But only oh, if a majority of Twitter users vote yes on a Twitter poll. <laughs> <laughs> the only condition which he will run. Except the candidacy. Well, folks, while we wait for this story to spill out, why don't we turn our conversation away from chaos in Congress and towards some chaos that Congress has caused outside the United States uh, or just inside the United States in some cases? And that is our. Title 42 policies. We saw one really, kind of in a lot of ways, the biggest piece of notable news that broke between Christmas and New Year's this year was the fact that Supreme Court stepped away from its holiday break to issue a temporary administrative stay of a district court opinion out of DC District Court by Judge Emmett Sullivan. 
essentially saying that Title 42 policies is a set of policies that the Trump administration installed. The Biden administration did continue for several months, although they've tried to stop them more recently. We'll get to that in a second. Essentially saying people crossing the border can be just returned to their country of origin or returned across the border summarily without having to be able to have the opportunity to apply for asylum or all the usual processes we have in place for people crossing the border on public health health grounds because of the COVID-19 public health crisis. The Biden administration kept this, these policies in place after former President Trump's administration left office. They then tried to end them earlier this year, but they were enjoined from doing so uh, by a nationwide injunction by a different district court judge. Meanwhile, in a separate line of legislation, we saw this challenge to the policies generally go forward and actually reach the opposite conclusion in a lot of ways in D.C. District Court saying the policies themselves have been invalidated on legal grounds. This actually isn't inconsistent with the prior ruling necessarily. The prior injunction was the Biden administration couldn't end it because of procedural failings on administrative law grounds. This was a substantive critique of the policy and its basis at this point, particularly because essentially the COVID-19 crisis was being seen as has been trumpeted by a lot of parts of the administration and others as kind of coming to an end in various regards. And yet this policy hadn't shifted. Um, that order, though, by Judge Sullivan, he gave five weeks to the administration to wind down Title 42 policies. That was going set to expire December 21st. And in that interim, we saw, I think it was 19, if I recall correctly, Republican-led states initiate litigation, having not participated in the district court phase of litigation, directly to the Supreme Court, seeking an emergency intervention by the Supreme Court. And that's what the Supreme Court is now weighing, and they have issued this administrative injunction while they consider this request. Alan, let me turn to you first. Get us up to speed on some of the legal questions here and where this fits in and how that intersects with a lot of the policy considerations that are clearly driving a lot of the dialogue around Title 42. Yeah. Now, legally, this is like a very complicated thicket. And and Steve Laddick, friend of the blog, has done a lot of good writing about this. And, and we'll you know, drop a link to the stuff that he's he's written about this. I mean, it comes down to a couple of, of key issues. Sort of one issue and the specific one before the Supreme Court is whether or not these states should be able to intervene, in particular, given how relatively late that they entered into this litigation. There's also kind of the ever-present question of whether or not any of these issues should be being dealt with by the Supreme Court as part of the quote-unquote shadow docket uh, on these sort of emergency grounds, or whether the court is playing it straight in terms of applying the right standards. But I, I kind of want to focus less on that and on the question of state intervention, because I think there are two ways of thinking about it. One is to say, look, this is a really straightforward issue. The states missed their chance. They had a long time to do this. They knew for a long time that the Biden administration was likely to wind down the Title 42 program and that they wanted it to continue. And so they should have intervened earlier. That's one way of thinking about this question. Another way is to say more generally, do we want states to be able to intervene and block the current administration's attempt to stop what the past administration did. And if that's the question, then I think there's no really satisfying answer because no matter how much you try to reason from first principles, I just think that your policy priors are inevitably going to drive your views on the procedure, right? You know, this reminds me a little bit of, uh, of uh, what's sometimes called Kerr's Law after the uh, great law professor Oren Kerr, who in, in 2008 and then in 2016 wrote these great snarky blog posts pointing out that now 
the Democrats and Republicans immediately have to flip on all the important questions of separation of powers and uh, procedure, right? You know, in 2008, suddenly Democrats have to like executive power and Republicans vice versa. And then they have to do the same switch in 2016. And then, of course, the same switch in, in 2020 with the election of, of Joe Biden, right? I mean, it, you know, if it, during the Trump administration, state suits played an incredibly important role in uh, progressive policy priorities and progressive legal campaigns against what progressives viewed. And you know, I personally think it's accurate, but at the very least what progressives viewed as executive overreach. And so, you know, if, if you're trying to be neutral about that, well, why shouldn't the Republican states have the same opportunity to, to, to do that? You know, my, my view tends to be that we generally over proceduralize executive branch policy decisions, especially decisions by one president to cancel what the previous president did. And, you know, my preferred view would be that unless the administration is lying about the reasons what they're doing it, they should basically get a lot of flexibility to cancel what the previous administration did because elections have consequences. I I think, frankly, that Trump should have been able to cancel DACA on those grounds, um, just as I think that Biden should be able to cancel the Title 42 blocking of of immigration on 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 those grounds as as well, um, so I think that's where some of the legal issues get. Now that's of course different than the the policy issue, which is that Title Forty Two is, you know, just kind of I think ridiculous, especially at this late stage in the in the pandemic. Um, but that is a different question from the from the legal issues. I will confess I have not followed the legal back and forth closely because, frankly, at this point it's so complicated. The procedural issues are increasingly bizarre for all of the reasons that Steve identifies. I will just say on the substance, I will go stronger than saying that Title 42 is ridiculous. I think it's it's pretty evil. And what I mean by that is that this is an authority that until the spring of 2020 had never been used to keep people out of the country in large numbers. It was implemented Uh, against the advice of the CDC director at the time, who felt that it was not necessary. Well, I should say also, it was widely decried by Democrats at the time that it was implemented as an example of the Trump administration's sort of racist and ugly policymaking when it came to the border. And yet now it has continued into the Biden administration and has become this kind of article of faith, you know, that that this is something that, of course, we've always been doing, and therefore it, you know, it, it should continue. You see Democratic senators arguing for it to continue. At this point, it is completely disconnected from whatever public health rationale ever existed, which it didn't to begin with. I think it it is ugly also in that it it connects the idea of people trying to enter the United States with the notion of disease uncleanliness, which is historically a very, very ugly idea indeed, and and I think was a a useful tool for the Trump administration for that reason. Um, But the the most ugly part about it is just that it, it results in people having to live in unbelievably dangerous circumstances. It means that if you come to the U.S. seeking asylum, you can be turned away and sent back to the country from which you are seeking asylum. It means that if you, even if you aren't turned back, um, you might be forced to stay in Mexico under increasingly dangerous conditions. The, there's been a lot of reporting about 
kidnapping violence in cities along the US-Mexico border precisely because of this. And it's just awful. And it's essentially made it impossible might be too strong, but extremely difficult for asylum seekers to seek asylum in the United States, which they are entitled to do as a matter of law. So it just strikes me as this sort of end run around legal obligations that the United States has. And the government has been able to kind of get away with it, I think, because there's an out of sight, out of mind component. You know, people really got angry about the family separation policy and with with excellent reason, to be clear. But Title 42, you know, the horror is less inside the United States and more on the other side of the border. And so it just doesn't penetrate the public consciousness in the same way. But the I think there are, you know, a lot of questions have been raised about whether or not it, it violates international legal obligations under the principle of non-refoulement. I don't see how it doesn't. And it just, it's really, really brutal. And I think as an example of how when it comes to immigration policy, the Trump administration was extraordinarily successful in changing the policy conversation so that this incredibly harsh, restrictive immigration policy becomes the norm and the baseline from which everyone else has to make an argument to depart. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Yeah, I agree with that entirely, but I think it's only half of the point. And the other half of the point, Quinta's going to get mad at me because this is a both sides argument, is that the the people who are making the argument that Quinta is making, with which I agree, are generally speaking completely unwilling to face the consequences of their own policies, which is that we have allowed the asylum system to be the tail that wags the entire dog of the immigration system. It's not the way the system is supposed to work. It's not actually capable of operating that way. And so you have this, uh, it's now hundreds of thousands of people who have non-meritorious asylum claims, who in fact will not get asylum, who come announce that they are seeking asylum, and as a consequence of which are uh, admitted and paroled into the country. Now, I am very pro-asylum. I have literally housed asylees in my house. 
but this is not the way to handle a large scale migration. And the problem with what the Biden administration has done, instead of coming in and doing what it, uh, I think, intended to do, which was to come in, set up a series of alternative pathways to entry for people who are under genuine stress, some of them climate-induced, some of them uh, gang pressure-induced, some of them just economic conditions-induced, but who are not actually eligible for asylum. They got spooked on that because of the whole caravan rhetoric and the early Republican rhetoric of you know, a crisis on the border. And so they abandoned the part of what the campaign had talked about, which was, you know, thinking rationally about how to handle large-scale migration, which is happening, which we have to deal with, but is not fundamentally about asylum. And so you have one side that wants to separate children from families. You know, I agree. uh, The Title 42 stuff is completely indefensible, and it has nothing to do with public health. It has everything to do with managing a large-scale immigration. Uh, And that's wrong. And then you have another side that wants to pretend that a large-scale immigration is not happening, and that what is in fact happening is that there are a lot of asylum applications, and we have individual duties to each one of them. That is neither of these. They're not morally equivalent, in my view, but they're both really stupid and they're bad ways to run an immigration system. And we're going to, we're, we're, you know, paying a price in the incoherence of our policy for the fact that both sides are unwilling to confront the, the situation effectively. Yeah, look, I'll walk into this trap. I'm the woman on the show. I, my, you know, my, my bleeding, bleeding heart just weeps for this, this situation. Look, it is horrible. What, what happens to people under this situation? And I do think that, you know, Seeing asylum is a legal right. Does the immigration system work perfectly? No, obviously not. I do think that it is incredibly ugly how the Biden administration has allowed the center of gravity on immigration to be shifted toward this really ugly xenophobic nationalist pole, um, which is not just, you know, a, a function of sort of ugly rhetoric, but it actually does result in people getting hurt and dying in large numbers. And I think that's unconscionable. Yeah. I mean, I I, I will agree with Quinta on this. You know, I, I think your point's well taken, Ben. There are, there are real immigration challenges the country is facing, and we need to have a frank conversation with those in a context outside of asylum. But asylum is there for very valid reasons. And I don't think that, you know, we can, I don't think this is quite what you're proposing, but I do think is what people who are strong advocates of keeping Title 42 policies in place are saying that, no, we can make asylum all secondary to these things. You know, we, there's a good reason why we have built into our international treaty obligations and our statutory law, core exceptions to things like when unaccompanied children come to the border, they should not just be returned in a situation where they're highly vulnerable to things like human trafficking and abuse. Uh, it's in the human trafficking laws and statutes in the United States, Congress enacted. This Congress has in some ways reinforced, the prior Congress, I should say, has in some ways reinforced. And this got around them in the Trump days, not, not so much in the Biden days where I understand that part of the policy they, they reversed. And the Biden administration in allowing 20, Title 2042 to kind of be used in this way for the first year it was in office or year plus, it lent a lot of legitimacy and validity to it, um, which I think is is a bit of a problem. I'm not sure that that means there's never a situation where this 
authority is appropriate to be used. I'm not sure for the first few months of the pandemic where we didn't understand the public health dynamics, it wasn't a reasonable prophylactic move or some application it couldn't have been used for some limited time bound period. But we're so obviously past that now. And the very fact that you have the very same people urging that these Title 42 measures remain in place that are premised on the idea of an emergency related to COVID are the same people who often are arguing that we should remove and defund any effort to combat COVID domestically. It's completely incoherent. And that actually inherently, I think, is really going to pose a problem for them before the court. Um, we have to remind, like, the this late era Roberts court, the kind of post-Trump Roberts court, their signature move is the major questions doctrine, right? Their signature move is, like, really, really broad grants of broad authority to the executive branch by Congress, by broadly worded statute by Congress, require greater scrutiny than they've gotten by the court in the past to super oversimplify things. And, like, this runs headlong into that, I think, right? Like, this clearly seems to be a case where the executive branch is using this very broadly worded statute in ways Congress did not anticipate and could not reasonably anticipate it. I don't love major questions doctrine, but it seems to put the court in a difficult position. In this particular case, I think there's lots of ways for the court to avoid having to reach that, and particularly because of the procedural posture. My guess is they just kick it back to the D.C. Circuit and the district court um, in the end, or basically say, no, these these court, these states had no basis for intervening. That's the actual question they're weighing, and that will effectively kick the merits back to the D.C. Circuit. Um, where the Biden administration, is worth noting, is actually appealing the district court's ruling they just did not seek a stay, so they would go ahead and dismantle it pending appeal, and then they would have to go through saying, like, okay, well, well what do we do with this? And that's because, again, that's their policy preference. They were just prevented by doing that by an earlier district court judgment. Yeah, I just want to say I have no brief for keeping Title 42 in place. It is incoherent. My point is that the policy that emerges when you remove it is also incoherent. It's a policy of admitting hundreds of thousands of people, 10% of whom will be found to have valid asylum claims. That's a crazy way to deal with a migration of that size. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't deal with it. I'm not saying you should reject everybody. In fact, I think you should basically admit a huge percentage of the people who are coming here. But don't pretend this is about asylum. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say I actually do think that it's coherent for the people who support Title 42 but oppose in intra-U.S. COVID measures. It's coherent if you understand disease as something that conceptually encroaches upon, you know, the healthy, pure American state from outside and must be kept at bay. Ideologically, I think that is very consistent indeed and and very ugly. So speaking of quasi-fascist ideologies, let's talk about the Ukraine-Russia war. <laughs> How was that? How was that as a <laughs> It was a nice, it was a nice variation mm-hmm, on the usual, mm-hmm. but I, I liked it. I liked you it. You know, I tried, I tried. Yeah, was um, good. <laughs> so this, this last segment, we are talking about the amount of weapons that the U.S. has been contributing to when it comes to the war in Ukraine. And I'm going to draw in my intro here on a, a essay in foreign policy called the arsenal of democracy, which is a great phrase is back in business by, um, Robbie Gramer. So what Gramer writes is, and I'll just quote here, the United States nearly doubled the number and price tag of approved arms sales to NATO allies in 2022 compared with 2021, uh, which is a pretty shocking 
number. I certainly knew there had been an increase, but didn't had no sense that it was it was doubling. Um, and then Gramer also notes, and again I'll quote: "The flurry on new defense sales comes amid growing concerns in the West that NATO countries are running out of excess military equipment and munitions to send to Ukraine. Defense officials and experts say that Europe's defense industrial base is struggling to rapidly expand its capacity. So essentially, the U.S. is kind of filling that hole." There are a lot of different angles here. Scott, let me turn it to you to start off. What do you make of this trend? Sure. I mean, it's a really interesting, notable trend, not necessarily a reversal, but a massive amplification of a role the United States has really played with a lot of its allies for many years, but that it is expanding the scale and perhaps more importantly, expanding the expected time frame of of a high level scale of that relationship. Um, the United States is an arms exporter of various types of high end technology of variety of ways, everywhere, everything from small arms to rocket systems to fighter jets and everything else like that. We have been for a long time. We do that for strategic reasons. Um, you know, the United States likes to build relationships with partners because we can offer high-end technology, often particularly when you're talking about the high-tech stuff, works much better than the competitors, the main competitor for many years being really Russia, China to some extent, but Russia being one of the, probably the bigger one in this particular space. It works much more effectively. But then you build a relationship with that country because all of these exports come with a long, long tail. Once you buy a tank or even once you buy a rifle, you need replacement parts and you need ammunition. And all those things are only manufactured by the United States in many cases, not in all cases. And so you are building really when through these exports, not just a one-time sale, but a long-time enduring relationship between the United States and these client countries that are buying these arms sales, right? And this is actually a foundational aspect of our security relationship with a lot of major allies in a lot of regards. This really seems set to really deepen that in a lot of ways, and in ways that actually I think are genuinely kind of problematic. Remember, Europe is a country that we have actually, within the NATO alliance and through other channels, have been really trying to get them for a long time to take on greater responsibility for their own national defense, in part to curb costs on the United States, in part to kind of like, I think, decentralize uh, and de-link certain aspects of our policy. It doesn't get talked about as much, but I think it's it's real to make them a little less dependent uh, on the United States in various regards, in part because the United States isn't always a reliable actor as we've seen the last, well, from four to six to four years, two years ago during the Trump administration, where the commitment to Europe was, was more questionable. And this kind of arguably runs against that. You know, if Europe's in a position where they really just start leaning on the United States more for all of those arms purchases, what happens if you get a United States administration that's not as inclined to give those for various reasons? So I think it raises a lot of complicated questions, even though you know it's often framed as saying, well, the United States wants this because it wants clients, it wants to make money for US companies, it wants these dependent relationships. To some extent, that's true. I mean, that is a logic that drives aspects of US arms sales policies. But there are a lot of negative externalities that I think the Biden administration, which has a lot of people who have are in the kind of post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan, restraint-oriented model, want to have a much more calibrated approach to foreign affairs and defense policy in a variety of ways, are probably sensitive to. And I suspect they're wrestling with how to how to calibrate those, those concerns effectively. All right. I want to give a less calibrated answer here. Uh, I share a lot of Scott's sensibilities about this, but I think this is an unqualified good thing. And for exactly the reason that Scott has some anxieties about it. We have been saying to the Germans and to a bunch of other countries, you got to get your GDP, your military spending up to two and a half percent of GDP. 
for years and years and years across administrations, and we've never been persuasive on this question. Vladimir Putin was persuasive on this question. And all of a sudden, these countries are, A, giving weapons to Ukraine, which means they have to replenish their weapons. Uh, in the case of a bunch of Eastern European countries, that actually means giving old stocks of some Soviet weapons and replenishing them with U.S. stuff. Uh, this is part and parcel of a very deep uh, strengthening of the NATO and the Western alliance, and that it should be oriented around purchases of stuff that are actually made in the United States and contribute jobs without being pork, by the way. These are stuff that these countries actually want, you know, and we're in a position to help democratic countries bind themselves more closely to the Western alliance by way of supporting Ukraine in a fashion that increases U.S. exports of military goods. I think it's wonderful and I love it that, you know, Ukrainians uh, tweet about U.S. weapon systems as though they were cuddly uh, stuffed animals. So, yeah, uh, I say rah-rah defense industrial complex. And precisely for the reasons that Scott is saying, if you want a world in which the U.S. doesn't have to intervene all the time and in which that kind of restraint is possible, making collective self-defense real making people bought into it and having them do it with interoperable weapon systems uh, that are relatively easily replenished is a really, really important logistical accomplishment, and we should be celebrating it. When we consider this, we do have to bear in mind, Ben is the number one global exporter of the plushy HIMARS system, the most in-demand <laughs> gift for, for all of your anti-fascist hey, babies out there for this holiday we're season. Start so selling don't it. think this isn't a bit of self-interest on Ben's part either. It's not the plushy HIMARS. It's the 3D printed HIMARS. And if you <laughs> want a 3D printed HIMARS, just look at my Twitter feed. You've seen I've, I've printed some HIMARS. Uh, I've given them to some Ukrainian friends. You know, U.S. weapon systems, they're cute, they're cuddly. Give them to your kids. I mean, they may be 3D printed from for now, but they, they should be they should be plushy. If, if, any, if there are any plushy manufacturers uh, who listen, uh, get in touch with us. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to quickly say, I mean, as much as I hate agreeing with Ben Wittes, as we uh, identified at the beginning of the episode, I mean, I, I basically agree with everything that he said. And just to maybe extend this to a kind of more banal point, What's the alternative right now? I mean, Ukraine needs these weapons. They have been incredibly successful. At this point, we have invested too much, both, you know, in terms of actual material and money, but also, I think, ideological investment, which is correct, frankly, given the nature of the threat to democracy that, that Russia poses. And if they need these weapons, someone has to supply them to them, and it'll be us. And then we'll just have to deal with whatever consequences of that come next. But this does seem like an odd time to be stingy with precisely those things that are causing Russia's you know, profound military collapse in, in Ukraine. I think what you all are saying is 100% right. In a lot of ways, I think that's certainly the like kind of short to medium term dominant logic, right? Which is that there's 
clearly a real military strategic need. This is a way to meet it. It does get the Europeans much more invested in their national defense in a certain way. That's certainly true. Although it's it's worth noting, it's not the way we've been trying to get them to do it, right? We want Europe to develop its own native defense capabilities in a lot of these fronts, ways to actually build and develop their own weapon systems that are interoperable with the United States ones in various regards, but in a lot of ways are able to make them an independent threat, an independent world power that can work with us in various regards. And there's good reason for Europe to do that, not least of which is that the United States commitment to Europe has fluctuated over the years, although you know, hopefully that may not be the case moving forward, but who really knows? You know, I, I do think it's worth in the medium to longer term I think there are real questions here, right? Like there's reasons why these policies have been around for a long time and people like them and find them in place. And it's always, particularly the last 30, 40 years, been a major kind of pillar of US security assistance and foreign policy and US security relationships. But there is, I think, a reasonable concern articulated by, you know, Dwight Eisenhower and lots of people over the last, you know, 60, 70 years about this idea of the military industrial complex, basically building and shaping our thinking about how we how much are these relationships being driven by our strategic interests versus our economic interests? And I don't love that they actually, too, are being bled together in different ways. I think describing the possible positive externalities like you have been is accurate. But I worry when we begin to lump them together as to what is driving the policy. I don't know if we've done that yet. I'm not sure we do will, but I worry. I don't think it's illegitimate to or unreasonable to worry that that might one day kind of enter the equation. Yeah, Scott, I, I don't disagree, but my question is on what margin are we talking about? I mean, there's no question that we have a military-industrial complex. We had it when Dwight Eisenhower warned about it. We've had it ever since. We had it during the Cold War. We had it after the Cold War. I mean, we, you know, the entire F-35 program exists in large part to sell these jets to, to, to our allies. And so my question is, without taking anything away from your sort of theoretical analysis of the problem, which I think is well taken... At this margin, which is to say, giving Ukraine more high Mars, giving Ukraine more whatever else they need, is that the margin that we should worry about, given that at least in this case, the benefits of, you know, for once the United States actually being able to like support the good guys almost without any ambiguity, is this the margin that we should be worrying about this problem? No, I agree. And that's why I think it's a medium to long-term concern more compared to the short and the medium. But we have to bear in mind, like this isn't just a short-term policy we're implementing. I mean, we are structuring our relationship with Europe, which is that if this pattern continues, probably for not that much longer, given the sheer scale of turnover, we're seeing particularly for all these governments that were still using Soviet and post-Soviet based equipment and are transferring that to the Ukrainians because that's what they know how to use. And they're replacing those stocks with American built, Western built weapons and armaments, overhauling their system. They're building whole new relationships of dependency on the United States. And that could last decades. Um, again, all these governments are still using post-Soviet Russian technology because that's what they bought into 30 or 40 years ago. And the path dependency of that is real. I think there's a lot of upside of that. I don't want to undersell that, but I do think there are some policy concerns. I really would think it comes down to the fact that maybe when we're thinking about these weapon systems and interoperability, we need to make a kind of multi-production chain, multi-supply chain system where we have close allies actually helping to produce and build into these things, build different components, build different parts of it so that there isn't just one-way relationship or one-way reliance and it's a more complex 
interdependent relationship in various regards. That actually was an effort that's been made with certain major defense partners, including over the construction over major fighter jets and major kind of high-end weapon systems within the NATO alliance that's kind of fallen apart and been complicated in various regards. I'm not totally up to speed on the current status of those efforts, but maybe we need to see some doubling down of those efforts to kind of maybe mitigate some of those long-term concerns. Again, I agree. I think they're mostly theoretical now, but it's not something to, to just shove away and ignore. I, don't, I think people who raise those concerns are that it's something worth thinking about, at least to some regards, even now. Can, can I just ask one more question, Scott? I'm kind of curious. I want to clarify something. Is the concern about how this will entangle the United States in a particular foreign policy that might be bad for the United States? Or is the concern that this is essentially a kind of, I don't even necessarily mean this pejoratively or just descriptively, a kind of imperialism, right, where you have the the metropole, the United States, exporting and creating chains of dependence on certain very high technology goods. And so it might be great for the United States, but it's really bad for the Czech Republic, which now is even more subordinate to the United States because it will have retooled entirely on U.S. weapons pipelines. I mean, the concern could be both, but I, I, it's interesting to think because the, you know, they're, they're both concerns, but they come from just almost opposing valences. No, I, I think that's right. And frankly, you've described kind of like the right restraint version of restraint and left version of restraint <laughs> logics to some degree, uh, both which kind of arrive at a similar kind of critical outcome. But I think the fundamental idea is that like really you see versions of both and it kind of depends on your fundamental assumptions about, you know, United States interests and how right those are in foreign countries and how right they are or wrong they are. Uh, and so it's a, it turns on a lot of assumptions on how you frame the questions. The underlying logic, I think, is kind of the same, is that the United States is going to end up on a certain trajectory that it might not be if not for the relationships built up by these sorts of actions. Well, folks, we will have to leave the conversation there for now, um, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder on over in the week to come. Alan, get us started. What is your object lesson for this week? So my object lesson is the delightful black comedy, uh, Do Revenge, which is streaming on Netflix. I have a very soft spot as a child of the 90s and early 2000s for the overheated teen drama movies like you know she's all that and uh cruel intentions love do do love cruel intentions and this is basically a movie in that style like very self-consciously calling back to that kind of the the fashion and, and all of that um you know about these basically just about how high school students are all sociopaths out to get each other and it is fabulous it is very entertaining I don't want to even get into the plot because it's very convoluted and also very spoily, but it is a marvelous, marvelous diversion. Do revenge on Netflix. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? I would like to recommend a graphic novel. Um, it is called Ducks by Kate Beaton. And if that name sounds familiar, it is probably because she drew a number of very popular sort of humorous comics about historical figures back in, I want to say like the 2010s um, and sort of made it as a cartoon. Earlier, movie. man, like 2006. Earlier? Like oh, damn. Okay. All yeah. right. She's like my age. It's shocking. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> She's haggard, just like Scott. Um, exactly. And, <laughs> and became became very popular for these sort of light, funny 
educational cartoons about Canadian history. She's from from Canada, from Cape Breton. But this is uh, the first graphic novel that she's put out, and it is a very different tone. Um, it's about two years that she spent working in the Albertan oil sands during the Canadian oil boom, uh, trying to get money to pay off her student loans, and is just really... The art is beautiful. Um, it's kind of cool to see how her art has changed and matured since she started drawing the, those comics those many years ago. And it's very sort of careful and thoughtful and genuinely sad and moving uh, in ways that I hadn't expected. Um, and I will say I am also learning a lot about what it was like to be in Alberta and various aspects of Canadian culture and the importance of oil to the Canadian economy during that particular time period. So I would highly, highly recommend it, uh, but definitely suggest that you steal yourself for some pretty rough stuff if you do pick it up. I, I will say I've been a Kate Beaton fan for like well over a decade at this point from Harka Vagrant. It's really phenomenal. And she actually did like a short sketch version of what I think is, I haven't read this book yet. Yeah, early she did. This book like 10 years ago. And it was really actually like, particularly compared to her prior work, it was so dark and kind of slow and contemplative, really an interesting read. I remember reading it because it was pretty soon after I got back from uh, Iraq and it kind of struck me as really kind of odd parallels about sense of kind of isolation and and weird uh, engagements with with actions you don't know you don't really think of in your day-to-day -day life and so it was uh it really struck me at the time it's really interesting so i'm looking forward to reading this quinta well for my object lesson i must start with a mea culpa because i made a few mistakes regarding some well-known muppets during our ask me anything episode this past week i may or may not have referred to rolf the dog as a bear. Uh, I may or may not have confused Scooter with Bunsen Honeydew, notorious Muppet scientist. Uh, Scott, I am how could thinking, you? All I can say for now is I'm I am contemplating deeply on my misjudgments, on my mistakes, on my shame with my co-hosts and my family, and we are discussing appropriate steps moving forward. That's all I'm prepared to share at this time. We're not mad, Scott. We're just disappointed. Are you committed to doing better, Scott? Am, I am. I am. Will you Loosely. be doing the work? <laughs> I've certainly done some homework over the holidays. Scott's going to post this apology in a notes app screenshot on Twitter. I, 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 I literally am. I'm, I was writing it up during the episode. So prepare yourself on Twitter. I'll, I'll be there with a formal apology in the days to come. You and your Muppet privilege, Scott. Me and, my, me and my Muppet privilege, exactly. I assumed I knew all this stuff about the Muppets because I'm a product of the 80s. Turns out, a little fuzzy around the edges in the details because it's been a while. But until we get back to you with some more apologies slash Muppet content, I do have an object class I'm very excited to share. I wanted to share it through the whole month of December, but I couldn't because it's not holidays related. I was sticking to my strict holidays related object lesson theme. And that is that Willow is out, folks. You can see it on Disney+. Plus. The Willow t live action television series finally creating a sequel to the movie 30 years later. I got to be honest with you. I think it's really good. I'm really enjoying it. It's got some 
kind of uncharacteristic rock tracks. It's got some very updated like characters and relationships, cool action sequence. So if you like swords and sorcery and all that stuff, check it out. I've only seen the first three or four episodes because uh, I watch it uh, mostly when I'm doing a uh, save it for long, long uh, Peloton rides, but um, I, which I haven't done in the last couple of weeks. But once I get back into it, I watch the rest. I'm confident the rest is going to be as good as the first few episodes. So check it out. I am not at all disappointed. I am in fact quite loving it. So uh, happy to pass along a thumbs up endorsement for Willow on Disney plus Ben, what do you have to bring us home for this week? Well, I, I thought of doing a pen to my hero, uh, uh, George Santos. Uh, but I just saw a tweet that, that he was sitting by himself in the back of the chamber and no one was talking to him. And, uh, one congressman went up and introduced himself and, and he, uh, when he said who he was, the guy bolted away. Um, can, can, can I just say? Can I just say? Like, I know that everyone hates George Santos, and obviously he's terrible, no, and I love probably him. a criminal, and and obviously shouldn't be. He's seated. an icon. But like, he, but like, relative to the actual bad people in politics, like he strikes me as there's like something almost endearing about how old fashioned. Which among us has not committed? check fraud in brazil <sighs> and made up our entire <sighs> he wasn't he at january 6th oh okay well then i said then I he says he is that. who knew yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe i take it well, back i don't um, know who his source is on that one but i would double check it why well, I feel like other than bringing attention to his lonely plight now i i shouldn't use him as an object of fun However, I did uh, this weekend go see uh, Mike Birbiglia's new show. And I want to say that if you happen to be in New York and you happen to be able to get tickets for the last two weeks of the show, go see it. It is, I, I mean, first of all, so funny that I actually had trouble breathing during a segment of it, I, I triggered an asthmatic reaction and could not get enough air in to prevent myself from becoming quite lightheaded. That's how hard I was laughing. Mike, why didn't you just finish the job? Come on, man, be funnier. Just a little <laughs> bit funnier. But uh, it was also very moving about, uh, you know, this process of realizing you're middle-aged and you're on the way to an early death, um, which speaks to so many of us. And I just say, like, if you're in New York, if you have the opportunity to go see it, it's called The Old Man in the Pool, and it is uh, very worth your time. Yeah, 84 minutes, extremely well spent. I, I have a minor correction. It appears that George Santos said that he was at Trump's speech at the Ellipse on January 6th, but did not enter the Capitol. However, he did say at one point um, that he had written a, quote, nice check to support January 6th defendants with their legal fees. I don't know if we've confirmed whether that actually happened. Yeah. So first of all, there'd be the question of whether that means he wasn't at the Ellipse, but was at the Capitol. Does it mean... When he wrote the check, did it cash? Yeah, it was a Brazilian check, you understand. So that's how to read George Santosisms is gonna be one of those mystical uh it's like the entrails of a of, of a goat. I am looking forward to when we finally get the security footage revealing that he was in fact in a Quiznos on K Street the whole time. But until then, <laughs> 
That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Rational Security 2.0. It is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. So follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review or wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including the daily Lawfare podcasts and our weekly sister podcast, Chatter. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special perks. Our audio engineer and producers this week were Noam Osbond of Goat Rodeo and Kara Shillin of Goat Rodeo. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quintan Allen, and our special guest, co-host Emeritus, Benjamin Wittes, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 